When I was in college, it was a dangerous time, and not only on April Fool's Day. You see, there seemed to be a climate of pulling pranks, practical jokes, trying to pull one on one another. If you were a teacher, you had to be careful. You might show up for your class on the right day, at the right time, right classroom, only to find it completely empty. And you'd be scratching your head wondering what was going on, only to discover the entire class outside the window, laughing, watching, and looking at your bewildered look on your face. Or if you were in the men's dormitory, you had to be careful that when you went to the gang showers, that you kept a close eye on your keys and your towel. For sometimes both would go missing, leaving you clean, but wet and unable to find a way back into your room. Uh, administrators were not immune, teachers, students. You might go to a parking lot, find that your car had been physically moved through human strength to another place. You had to watch what was in your food at the cafeteria. One time, a good portion of the calf, in fact, was moved completely into the tennis courts, um, on and on it went. You had to be on your game so that you would not be conned, duped, or had in some way. And in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you the story about the time that I got it the worst. But I think for now, it is safe to say that in life, we don't wish to be duped or conned or had. We don't want to discover that in our lives we have given ourselves over to a lie, that we have committed ourselves to something that puts a bitter taste in our mouth, that in fact we have purchased a lemon and now we have to live with it. We do not want to live lives where the joke in not so funny way is on us. The Apostle Paul in what is one of my very favorite passages in the whole of Scripture, levels a stinging indictment on the options available in his world and a ringing endorsement of his decision to choose the taste of Jesus. Fifteen wonderful verses beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, the Greek moros or moronic, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
And then he really leans in, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. In these powerful verses, our apostle affirms the strength of making a decision to follow Jesus in His way in life, but also levels a stinging rebuke as he looks out at the other theologies and philosophies and lifestyles around, that they are not simply second and third best, but in fact to pursue other ways and means is to find oneself headed to a life that is death in all reality. But it is also implicit, isn't it, in Paul's conversation that there are many ways and that in fact all of us are in search for something to give our lives to. Just a couple of weeks ago I was following E. Cantori uh, through Atlanta, Georgia on their tour. And in my vehicle I had tuned in 680 The Fan, sports talk radio in downtown Atlanta, and I was listening to the sports commentators as they were taking phone calls from fans, and it was a quite animated conversation. Do you know what the subject was? Tattoos. Tattoos. They were having this marvelous conversation about how to decide what is worthy to get a tattoo for. Uh, should you get a tattoo with this team's name on it? Do they really rise? Or how about another team's accomplishments? And then it went into, these were predominantly male callers, uh, it went into girlfriends. Uh, when is it appropriate to actually place the name of the one you were in relationship on your body for all eternity? And they were having quite a debate. What is it in your life? that is so valuable, that you can count on, that is enduring, that you would scar your body for it, that you would put a mark on your very flesh. As I listen to the conversation, I realize that the whole world is trying to figure out, every single one of us, what in life is worth giving everything for. What should I give my heart to? It's everywhere. James K.A. Smith, professor of philosophy at Calvin College, writes, To be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward a destination of your dreams. As Pascal put it, 
you have to wager. It is not up to you. You are already committed. You cannot not bet your life on something. You cannot not be headed somewhere. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. He says to be human is to be animated by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. Smith says we are all pursuing something. Every one of us is looking for someone or some group or some idea to give our lives, our hearts, our souls, our blood, sweat, and tears, everything to. And this is a deep commitment. In fact, the word fan. Did you know that the word fan comes from the Latin fanta- uh, fanaticus? which also the noun phantom, which some of you in this room will know, means temple. Temple. To be a fanatic, to pursue the work of being a fan in something, originally meant that someone was consumed by the gods. They were overwhelmed with the word worship a deeply religious, a significantly spiritual commitment to the very core of your being. Everyone, everyone committed to this endeavor, everyone wanting to worship, everyone desiring something to give your life to the temple. Now, when we hear the word temple, I imagine that some of these images immediately come to our mind. It might be something in Greece or Rome. It could be an image from Jerusalem or some temple around the world. It might be a grand cathedral in Europe. But we have these images, don't we, of what is a cathedral, a a place of worship, a temple. Well, Smith argues that we need to pay attention to all of the worship centers that are around us. We need to be alert to the cathedrals that are on offer. In fact, he says that we need to be paying attention to, in fact, we need to be, quote, reading even the secular liturgies that are options that are on the table. In fact, he's saying basically we should be doing precisely what the Apostle Paul was doing 2,000 years ago, critiquing the world that we live in. So what are some of the secular liturgies? Uh, You are not looking, by the way, now at some grand Christian house of worship, but rather this is a casino, a casino. Many years ago, I uh, had a uh, meeting in Las Vegas and had a little bit of a break and walked into a casino. And my impression was, wow, this is like being in a church. This is incredible. This, that you could get lost in a place like this. A few years ago, there was a film based on a true story about a man who became consumed with gambling. In one part of the film, a psychologist asked him, how would you rate the thrill you got from gambling on a scale of 1 to 100? Um, 100, he replied. 
And what about the biggest thrill you've ever had outside of gambling? Twenty, he said. You see, we know that, uh, for example, that the allure of gambling, that the desire of a casino is not for you to pop by once, is it? But rather to make the play of gambling the thing that defines the entirety of your life. Addiction is the goal. Worship is the expectation. This is success in this regard. Now maybe for some of you to see uh, this particular house of worship does not step on your toes, but I wonder, are there other cathedrals that we ought to pay attention to this morning? How about this one? The modern mall. The house of consumption, the worship of things. What would happen if we did a liturgy of shopping? Customers pouring in to well-lit, beautifully displayed merchandise. And oh, the good feeling of being lost in such grandeur. And then to select an item that you are sure will change the quality of your life forever. In fact, now you receive a little email. Thank you, Mr. Brian, for being a guest, a partner, a member of our REI family. Really, we're close. Won't you come back again? Won't you participate in our next family reunion? Won't you be a part of our religion, because it will make you happy. Or how about this one? For some of us, the airport. Oh, around the world, airports now designed as worship centers. Uh, worship centers. There's no two ways about it. Look at the architecture, even here in Seattle, to sit in a rocking chair and see the potential of a life without boundaries. The slogans of airlines, freedom and adventure, no limits, wings being set free, up in the air, the sky is the limit and beyond. In fact, now you are celebrated for your commitment to this lifestyle. On a plane just a week ago, the flight attendants going down, each customer that had achieved a certain status, and thank you, Mr. Smith, for being our valued customer. And then over the loudspeaker, the grand celebration. Uh, by the way, everyone, Mrs. Jones is on the plane. She is a million miler today on this flight. Let's give her a round of applause. And the religion of freedom, the celebration of, oh, I got to be that person that is everywhere but nowhere. It's a religion, friends. Or for others of us, it might, might be the modern sports Stadia, the Colosseums of the 21st century. Go to a house of worship like this and you will be entertained. Music, lights, heroes drawn into the whole affair. And thanks to the wonders of modern technology, now we can be online worshipers. And we don't even have to go to a place like this in our own living rooms. We can give ourselves to these important causes. We also find the architecture of power even in our own country. You walk into these houses of great strength and authority, and you're blown away with, oh, what would it mean if I had such power? 
You know, the old joke used to be, you know what every American senator sees in the morning uh, each day in the mirror? The next president of the United States. Every senator, the allure of power. I, th- I imagine some of us to look in the mirror in the morning. Oh, I must see a CEO, a president, a, a, a dictator, someone with great power. That is the religion that we pour ourselves into. Even in the Christian world, if I might add a footnote, the megachurch movement where incredible facilities are built in the model of the modern American mall to the glory of ourselves at times, to celebrate the great power that we have achieved. Oh, let's keep reading our culture this morning. Uh, Again, traveling in Atlanta over spring break, we went to the Fern Bank, a natural history museum. It was incredible. This architecture rivaling the best houses of worship in the world, it was incredible. To learn about the world, all of the incredible science, I was drooling at the experience. So much knowledge, so much incredible information to learn. And it wasn't until three days later, reflecting back on this experience, I realized there is one word, there is one name not mentioned in this place, and that is God. And that is the Creator. Not a house worshiping the Creator, but rather creation. A house dedicated to the worship of what humans can know. This, a religion all on its own. How about the modern gyms and workout facilities to the glory of our own bodies? The late novelist David Foster Wallace writes, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he gives some examples, including it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty, and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. The false promises of worshiping your own flesh. Oh, if I can just press in with a couple other examples as we're doing the work of the Apostle Paul, but now in our time. How about this one? How about the grandeur of the coffee shop? I'm not throwing stones. I'm just trying to be honest this morning. Cathedral in a cup. I mean, have you heard people order a cup of coffee? I would like two of this, one and a half of this, none of this, a smidge of that, a smidge of... I, I need it exactly like I was. So when I look down into that cup, The reflection I can see is me. It's not just a cup of coffee. It's an entire religion based on how I experience myself and what I consume in the world. And then perhaps wrapping this all together best, this final example, how about the device we hold in our hands on a regular basis? 
Now, let me press you for a moment. Here's the question. What is the name of a Samsung phone? Galaxy. Galaxy. Here's the description on their website of their new phone. The world's first infinity phone. The Galaxy S8 has the world's first infinity screen. The expansive display stretches from edge to edge, giving you the most amount of screen and the least amount of space. And the Galaxy S8 Plus is even more massive, our biggest screen yet. What is the promise of the device that we hold in our hands? It's not just a piece of technology. It's not just a new tool. It's I have the galaxy in my hands. There's a song that I'm waiting for one of the mobile phone companies to use in their advertising. You know what the song is? He's got the whole world in his hands. Because then the truth will be told. I was having a conversation just yesterday with a trusted friend and colleague, dreaming about could you set this device aside for a year? Nope, month, nope, week, no. Nope. How about 24 hours? Could we do it? Uh. And then we asked, we asked why. We never came to a conclusion, but I kept thinking about it as I was thinking about this morning. Here's why. Because I am omniscient with this in my hand. Because I am omnipotent with this in my hand. Because I can be everywhere I need to be with this in my hand. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is talking to Christians, those who are following Jesus, and he is saying to them as he looks out at the Roman world, at the world of Judea, there is a lot of foolishness out there, philosophies and theologies and suggestions about what to give your life to, and Paul says it's all hopeless, it will destroy you. No, there's something else. There is someone named Jesus, and this is different. The Apostle Paul is wanting his hearers, his readers, to wake up and to pay attention to all of the other alternatives in his life, in his world, in our life, in our world, that rival the worship of God. So it's one thing to identify all of this. It's quite another to say, well, how then do we avoid purchasing the lemon? How do we then avoid making one of these decisions where we find ourselves committed to something that's going nowhere? What do we do? Okay. I have to admit that I probably deserved it. And in a couple minutes, you're going to agree with me. 
So as I said, the culture when I was in college, there was lots of uh, uh, pranks going on. Everybody was trying to get everybody else. This was really a part of the... You had to be very, very careful, careful. Danger lurked everywhere, and many of us were constantly thinking of something to do. And so uh, it was to be that on a Saturday night, a group of us were going to study for an exam and had agreed that the place for the study would be a Taco Bell. And uh, during the middle of the week, I was thinking, well, life is a little slow. Uh, we need to mix this up a little bit. And so I placed a phone call to one of my classmates by the name of Kate. And Kate was one of these prankster types. And I said to her, how about I drive over to the women's dorm and I will pick you up and take you uh, to Taco Bell where we're going to study together. And she said, great. And we picked a, a time that I would meet in the women's dormitory lobby. Well, I thought, okay, I've got to uh, do a little something here. And so I asked my brother for his tuxedo. And I asked another friend on the hall for some flowers that his girlfriend had given him. <laughs> and uh, he gave them up to me. And, and, and then another friend had a very nice computer and printed out some marvelous official-looking tickets. And so Saturday night comes, I put on the tuxedo, the flowers in hand, I have the tickets, make my way across campus. This is before the age of mobile phones and things. And so I remember picking up the phone in the lobby and calling up uh, to Kate's room. And I said, hey, I'm ready, I'm here. And she said, you're just in sweats, jeans, casual, right? I said, absolutely. A couple of minutes later, she comes down. This is one of those alumni-type weekends. The place is packed. There must have been 200 people, 250, packed into the lobby. She walks out into the, the lobby, and there I stand. Her jaw drops. She comes over to me. She said, what are you doing? And I kicked in. What are you doing? I screamed. This has happened again. I paid for the tickets. I mean, I started to go on and on, and she... <laughs> The place falls silent. I mean, everyone's like this. And I just, I just kept rolling with it. She's beat red. She's crunching down on my tiny little bicep. And I mean, I haul out of there. And I think, man, I have, I have done it. And sure enough, you know, some of my friends think it's pretty, pretty cool. And it, word travels all over campus quickly uh, about this. But something happens right after that. And for a few weeks, for a few months... I'm not having sort of any interactions with members of the opposite gender <laughs> at all. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a barren land. It's a, um, and so it was a few months later that when I was studying in my room and the phone rang and there was a female voice that I paid attention. And this voice, which I did not recognize, said, Hello, is this Alex Bryan? Yes, my name is Heather Moore. Uh, I go to Chattanooga State, a school down the road from Southern College where I was going to school. She said, oh, We met at an event a, a few weeks ago. Uh, do you remember me? I had no clue who this was. And so I said, Yes, of course I remember. Yes, I remember. Um, she said, well, I was just wondering, would, would you like to go on a date? I said, yes. Uh, I, said, <laughs> I said, sure, that, yeah, that would be great. She said, well, I'm staying with a friend over at Thatcher Hall, the women's dormitory at, at, at Southern College, and would you mind coming over and, and picking me up there in, in the lobby? I said, absolutely. So 
I put down the phone, and I'm like, who is this? I ask all my friends, did I, do we? And I'm not getting a straight answer, but I can't, for some reason, I'm not putting anything together. And so Saturday night comes, I, I dress up for the event, haul across campus, walk into the lobby, and go over to one of the phones and, and call up to the room that she's staying in. And it's the same voice. Yes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be down in a minute. And again, it's another one of these homecoming type weekends. I mean, the place is jammed wall to wall. And so I'm just standing there. And there's young women coming and going and up to, I mean, all over. And I don't know what to look for. And so I'm just standing there and minutes go by and 10 minutes. I'm just standing. Finally, a young woman comes up to me and says, are you, are you Alex Bryan? I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm Heather Moore. Um, I think we're supposed to go on a date tonight. I have no clue who this person is. I said, it's so good to see you again, you know, Heather. And and we chat a little bit, and I am confused. So we're turning, and I remember it's about the time that I put my hand on the doors to walk out of the, out of the lobby there, that I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around, it's another young woman, and she says, excuse me. Um, are you Alex Bryan? Yes. She said, well, my name is Heather Moore, and I think we're supposed to be on a date tonight. I'm fairly verbal, but these two look at each other, and they don't miss a beat. No, he's my date. No, he's my date. He promised. No, no, no. They start screaming and yelling, and there's... And, I'm standing, the, the place, 250 people, silent. <laughs> Everyone's just like watching this. I'm standing, they're screaming and yelling, saying things about me, about one another. I don't know what to do. I, my memory serves that I, I physically fell to the floor. And I was just, and it was about the moment my knees hit the floor that I looked and the door swings open that goes to the staircase to the second and third floors. And a camera emerges Stop, 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 pictures, pictures. The camera drops, and I see then the face of Kate. <laughs> and all of her friends behind her, laughing and carrying on. And I'll tell you, I did not live that down for the rest of the entirety of the school year. I had, that was like the end of, <laughs> of all things. So, so the question is this, why do I tell this story on April Fool's Day? Why did I get conned? How is it that I got fooled? Sure, I was desperate, not secure in the moment. But I've come to the conclusion that there is one thing that absolutely would have prevented any chance of falling for that. If I had been in a relationship with someone. Or to double down on it, if I had met Nicole and we had been married for a few years, there's zero chance I would have fallen for that scam. The difference, a relationship. We live in a world of all of these cathedrals, all of these secular liturgies, 
these myriad of things that are calling for us to give them their worship with the promise that this will make us happy. We can't walk out of the world that we live in. It seems to me the only way that we can successfully negotiate that world and the way that it overwhelms us hour by hour, day by day, is to pour ourselves into the worship of Jesus Christ in increasing measure. Week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, a faithful hour every morning, listening to the music of Jesus throughout the day, becoming, if we must, one of those fools for Christ that can't keep Jesus off the mind and out of the heart, absolutely pouring ourselves into the richness of being married to Jesus Christ, that we are so gripped by His beauty, so awed by His wonder, that there is no way we are going to be conned by the things that are in the world. Jesus says, one greater than the temple is here. One greater than all the sanctuaries that the earth can come up with has arrived. Jesus says, build your house, build your temple on this rock, and everything will turn out in the beautiful, hopeful way of God in your life. My friends, it is all about the worship of Jesus Christ, if we are to beautifully make our way in this world. Amen and amen. I'd like to invite you to two experiences following the postlude. One is that Verley Ward, one of the elders in our congregation, will be up front here on the organ side of the stage to pray with anyone who would like. And then also, uh, in the rabbinic tradition, there is this, that the teaching of children of the Scriptures should be accompanied by the sweetness of honey, so that they might always know that the Scriptures are sweet. And so on this April Fool's, All Fool's Day, when we are reminded that to be a fool for Christ is a very good thing, uh, over on this side, we have dum-dums, airheads, smarties, and nerds. And for the young and the young at heart, a little, if I might, a little sacrament of the sweetness of what it means to follow Jesus is available. Also, after the band finishes the postlude. Our apostle writes, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Amen.